So, Bob, I sent out a recent survey asking everyone to rate all the co-hosts, and you were rated extremely highly. Everyone loves you as a co-host. Well, they don't have to live with me, so that helps. (laughs) So I thought we would uh, make it more of a regular thing, you know, Mm -hmm. every other week or something. Oh. And uh, first time hearing about it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought that we would answer some patron questions, maybe go over some news stories and psychology that are related to clinical stuff since you're my clinical co-host. Yeah. That is beloved so much by the listeners. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am your old friend from graduate school, also a therapist here in town, Seattle. And if you want to hire Bob as your therapist, he has one or two openings, bobgettle.com. All right, this first question. I am an attorney at a law firm, and a few of the partner's behaviors are downright absurd. For example, one partner will throw draft papers across the table if he doesn't like something written. One will make belittling comments while saying he is so much better than everyone else. One mocks people's attire or appearance. One has thrown draft papers at an associate and screamed at her. And one has harassed several associates and assistants to the point where many have quit. Also, involving HR does not help. From my office, I can see the partners as they walk back to their offices. They look at the look on their face seems as though they enjoy making people uncomfortable and upset. Two weeks ago, I had my annual review. I received a good review and was told I would be working more with one of the partners who was very difficult. I was told, quote, everyone likes to work with you because you're very friendly and nice. And this partner would like to work more with me. I don't know what to do, and I have been worrying a lot. I am a sensitive person, and many times I am overly polite. Working with this partner wears on me, but I try not to let it show. As an associate, I cannot refuse to work with this partner because it impacts my career at the firm. Questions. How do you work? So there's a number of questions uh, here, but so let's just go over these, and I'll just ask you, Bob. How do you work with bosses who have narcissistic traits, sociopathic traits, or are just generally difficult people? What do you say, Bob? I say that's really damn hard. Yeah. Really hard. And let's be clear, there's probably no way to do that and feel comfortable at the same time. You could be very effective and work work with somebody, and it can take a toll on you, and it probably will. Right. Yeah. Right. The question sort of implies there's a technique or some kind of responsibility on her part to figure out a way to cope. But what you're saying is like, there might not be a way to cope. Yeah. Yeah. I bet she is uh, really good at her job and I'm sure she is sought out because she's temperate or moderate or whatever. And um, that's a hard place for her to sit. Somebody who's going to be abusive. Yeah. Yuck. Yeah. I guess if there's one thing, because she says she's very accommodating, very, you know, right. Nice. I guess one thing you could do is go on a campaign to be less nice and therefore less attractive to work with and therefore, you know, not like totally, you know, uh, a dick to everyone. Sure. But a little less accommodating to their problematic behavior. Put a little salt in the sugar. Yeah, less uh, enabling, you know. Like, uh, I think of an example like Hmm. you're working with the partner and the partner is is like – 
you know, berates you, makes fun of you or something. Like says something like, oh, well, that's an interesting work outfit today. And a nice person, an overly nice person might say like, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. I, you know, the laundry is full and I just threw this together. Sorry about it. And that kind of, if that's a pattern, that sort of enables that behavior that you don't like to see. Right. A less enabling and, but not completely uh, confrontational approach would just be like, huh, thanks for sharing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or, oh, so you don't like it. Okay. You know, or just something neutral, just yeah. or or even just ignore the comment. Just be like, huh, okay, you know. Yeah. So anyway, let's get back to you know what we're talking. So, um, or even something in between, like, like, um, oh, ha ha ha. So anyway, you know, you know, like, there's a way of reacting that's like not super accommodating to right. that behavior, and maybe maybe that'll curb it a little bit, but. Maybe also it'll make you less uh, attractive to work with right. by those by those groups of people. You know, a thought that occurs to me as you're talking is catch them being good, like oh. ignore the shit behavior, and anytime they're polite or kind or the least bit, you know, something that you like or want, say thank you or oh. boy, thanks for being, you know, blah 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 blah. Ah, I like catch it. them being good. It's probably not going to turn someone who's got those kinds of habits, and it sounds like there's a whole culture here where all these partners are, you know, like feeding off one another or whatever. Probably not going to change it, like turn it around, but might make it easier. Yeah. And really, a lot of people, that's what they're looking for anyway, is some kind of uh, positive recognition. Right. Positive recognition. And, I mean, you're you're saying your advice is good, and then you're sort of downplaying it. But honestly, I think that's a great idea. Um, you know, we tend to look at mean people or partners or people in power, Donald Trump, for example, yeah. as people who are sort of above the need for accolades or positive feedback. And it's completely not true. If anything, they're more sensitive and more needy of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. When I was program director for a few years, I realized that I was like, because the whole time, you know, for 20 years, I was watching my boss be a boss and he just seemed so confident. He just seemed so above it all. I felt so unconfident. I felt so needy of his uh, positive feedback. Once I got to uh, program director, I realized how, the insecurity actually increases because there's so much more at stake. You know, when you're just take McDonald's, for example, when you are a cashier, the, um, you're, there's not a lot at stake, you know, like you have to take the order, you have to be a little polite. You have, you know, there's, there's certain set of tasks, but when you're manager of the McDonald's, you have to get every employee to like you because that's an important thing as a manager. Your employee, your employer, employees are supposed to like you. Um, they need to work. You got to get them to work hard. You have to have all the products be good. You have to have all the customers be happy. You have to have uh, your neighbors, your neighboring businesses have to be happy. 
uh, the owner has to be happy or several owners have to, they have to make money. Like there's the, the, the amount of responsibility in Z's and the amount of people who have reason to criticize you or, or praise you exponentially increases. And by that complication, it means that you cannot please everybody. You know, if you want to make the customers extra happy, you have to push the employees harder. You know what I mean? If you want your suppliers to be happy, that means your employees might actually be less happy because they don't have the things that they need. Like there's there's no way to make everyone happy when you're in charge. And so these partners, for example, uh, they might actually be doing this partially because they're incredibly insecure and incredibly stressed out and, mm-hmm. and a little bit of positive praise for good behavior yeah. might actually go a long way with them. Um, another question you mentioned in one of your podcasts about having an abusive supervisor at one time. How did you handle that experience? Have you ever had a, an abusive supervisor, Bob? Abusive? No, but punitive. Yes. Okay. How did you deal with it? How did you handle it? Not well. Yeah. What do you mean? Um, I, my self-respect took a hit because I ended up being too passive and not actually respecting my own, um, values needs um was this back uh in the late 90s in the late 90s no it was in the 2000s oh who was in the 90s well when you were at cpc there wasn't there some weird oh god yeah that sucked (laughs) i wouldn't say she was abusive but um she had a grudge against me and it was it was interesting, you know, from one year she wrote me this review, I had my performance review, and she wrote this really long, awful review about what a jerk I was. And then over that year I got a new supervisor, and his review was much shorter, <laughs> much more positive. And I'm like, wow, what a difference, you know. But, but you know, that's interesting because she would not say probably of herself that she had a grudge or she was, she was, she would probably say she was evaluating the behavior that she saw, but... These things are interactive. They're not uh, a one-way street. You know what I'm well, saying? Well, do you care to share what happened? or Like, what What did she criticize you for? Oh, I, I wouldn't remember the details. Oh. Yeah, that was a long time ago. It's 20 years now. Um, no, I actually don't know. I think the reason, though, she had a grudge against me was because she set me up on a blind date with her good friend, and I wasn't interested beyond the blind date. <laughs> and so never followed up, and I think um, that put it put a bad taste in her mouth about me and then we oh, had to work no. together and then she became my boss oh no yeah that was before she was my boss that was when i was an intern yeah i, I mean you must have told me about that back then i, I remember i mean yeah. that's why it popped into my head was because i remember you know you having troubles with her um so then she just kind of lost perspective and decided to um she took it personally or i something. think so that's my take on it yeah 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 well, did you lose sleep over it? Were you stressed out? Was it hard to deal with? Yeah, because, you know, weekly supervision meetings and you're supposed to talk clinical cases and, you know, that's a lot of personal stuff gets, as you know, gets comes up in that. And so I'm having to be vulnerable with somebody who doesn't like me. Did you regret going on a blind date with a co-worker's friend? No, no, I'd do that again. Yeah. I mean, you know, not now because yeah. I'm married. But yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that'd be all right. She was, a, she was, she was a, just a staff person. And then when I got a job there, she got promoted Yeah, and then became my boss. So that was just, you know, bad luck. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I the only thing I'll add to what Bob is saying is uh, just reiterating what Bob is saying is that um, yeah, it's awful. Um, I officially hate like four or five people on this planet, and you know th- I think three of them are, are coworkers, ex coworkers of mine. So uh, it's really awful. Um, and this is you know of course out of probably tens of thousands of people I've come into contact with in my life, right. Uh, so, um, and I legitimately have PTSD from some of these people, you know, where when I see them, my heart starts to race. Yeah. Uh, my body is, feels threatened by these individuals because of their personality disorder and the way that they abused me. Yeah. And I assume a lot of other people around, uh, them, you probably, know, probably. Yeah. Um, and yeah, how did I handle it? And as Bob said, not good. Um, I talked to my therapist, I suppose, which helped, honestly. I talked to all my friends and family about it as often as I could, which was frequently. They listened. Uh, mm-hmm. That helped. I, I lost sleep over it. I would, you know, you, you go, you take a shower and you, your mind starts to wander and you, your your mind goes to those those people and the ongoing conflicts and, you know, you sort of break out in a cold sweat and, you know, it's awful. Um, you ask how, how do you not allow the behavior to affect you? Um, so the thing that I, the thing that I did over time, cause you can't really avoid them cause you're stuck with them. Right. I mean, the easiest answer is to find another job, but that's, the, that, that's easier said than done. And plus that doesn't guarantee that there's going to be less sociopaths at your next job. The thing that I did was I basically treated them like they were clients or customers at all times. So with most people I'm trusting, you know, like I'll engage with them uh, given the situation um, at a trusting level. I just trust that like when I'm interacting with you right now, Bob, I'm, I don't have an, I don't have a guard up with you. I'm not like, you know, watch what you say or don't get too close or don't reveal too much. Cause you know, Bob's going to jump on that. Cause you don't. And most people don't, but abusive people, uh, once you've, ide- once you've seen their true colors, then you say, Oh, that person for whatever reason is not to be trusted. And so in my mind, I keep them in at arm's length. So, and whenever I enter into a conversation with them, I assume, <coughs> sorry, I'm getting over a cold if I sound funny. I assume they're going to abuse me at all times. I just think like, okay, I'm going into a meeting with that person. They're going to, they're going to hurt my feelings. They're going to say something or they're going to do something uncomfortable. Something's going to happen. And so when it happens, I will have predicted it. If it doesn't happen, then God bless. But but it often did or some, you know, cause these people, their weirdness isn't relegated to few, just a few instances. They're people like this are generally weird in my experience. Like they, they have a general odd presentation that sort of, um, pervades everything that they do. Have you found that to be true? Sorry, my mind drifted. Say it again. Uh, do you, the people that well do you have other examples other than the those two people that you've worked with that were abusive to yeah. you yeah i've been abused by some clients uh what about like coworkers and stuff like that abusive coworkers or like i don't know acquaintances or something so the thought is are these people do they have kind of a weird relatedness sort of like um 
Yeah, like in general, you know, like it or probably. Right. That's my experience. Yeah. It's like um now they might it not might not be a detectable weirdness right off the bat. But once you get to know someone well enough, it's just like you get to know like, oh, they're they're generally kind of uptight or they're generally on guard or they're generally hostile under they have a general uh, underlying rage that only pops out in overt ways every now and then, you know? Yeah. And so, so my point is, is that that's what I would do is I, I would just like, okay, I'm going into a meeting with that person. Do not trust them. Assume they're going to abuse you. And then when they do, you, you'll be ready for it. And you'll just be like, Oh, there it is. There's that abusive statement. There's yeah. that energy. And you know, it, it hurts a lot less. Yeah. And what I found in the past was I didn't do that. And I would, I would go in this cycle with, you know, abusive people that I worked with where they would abuse me. It would be horrible. I would be physically traumatized, you know, and then be stressed out for a week or two. I would pull back and I'd be like, well, watch out for that person. Yeah. That person would be super nice to me. Oh yeah. They would, you know, lull me back into a, uh, you know, uh, into trusting them again. Right. And this might be over a few months, you know? Yeah. And then bam, you know, something would happen. And I'd be like, how did I let them back into my trust zone? <laughs> like, why did I do that? You know? And uh, so, uh, you know, that's, that's one technique that doesn't solve the problem, but it mitigates it. I think it's unsolvable. Yeah. Though, you know, what occurs to me as, as I'm listening to you is there's a transactional nature of being an employee, in this case, in a law firm, which is I'm there for a reason. I'm there because this is how I make my living or because, you know, this is a stepping stone to, you know, whatever it is I want to do or whatever, but I'm there because there's something that I want. And I think recognizing that I'm here as a volunteer and this is something that I want can help when you're putting up with somebody who's treating you like shit. Like this is one of the costs of working in this place. Right. But I think stepping back and recognizing the big picture, which is this is transactional and I'm here as a volunteer, um, I take back my power. Right. And this is a shitty part of this job. I have to deal with this person who acts in these awful ways. Yuck. Terrible. And that's one of the costs. And I can ask myself, well, is it worth it? And if the answer is, yeah, you know what? It is worth it. Then suddenly I'm not such a victim or feel. I'm, I'm not saying that your person is a victim. I am accepting. Yeah. And my, and I'm more ego protected and choosing like, yeah, I've evaluated and I'm choosing this. Yeah. Um, I, you know, for the pros and all the, all the cons, I choose this situation. I don't like these cons, Yeah, but I'm, I'm in it and I accept it and I'll evaluate it later. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of in a situation like that now with my job. I won't go into specifics, but um, there's there's certain aspects of my job at Antioch where uh, I'm currently in that space where I'm I'm in the past I would evaluate the pros and the cons and I would say oh you know the pros outweigh the cons so I'm going to stick with it but there's a certain part of it right now where I'm like are the cons getting too high because um, the cons have always been there but I. Am I, so what I said to myself was, uh, I've been dealing with this for about a year now. The cons have felt the, the cons haven't changed. They've just felt worse to me in, in the recent year. Bummer. 
And so I give, I'm going to give myself another year essentially. And if it doesn't, uh, feel, if it doesn't go back to the way it felt before, I'm, I'm going to change, I'm going to reconfigure my job at Antioch, you know? All right. Yeah. Um, all right. Next question. Patron Annie writes, I'm a newly licensed LMFT and loving the field. Congratulations. Yeah. I've been hearing conf- conflicting and often mixed up definitions of what qualifies as a as an anxiety attack. Mm-hmm. Panic attacks are defined in the DSM, but anxiety attacks seem to have different meanings for different people, including experts. Some folks define them based on triggers, length, physical versus cognitive symptoms, and more. And of course, some folks say they the terms are interchangeable. What is your take, Bob? My take, uh, anxiety attack is just a way of talking about anxiety. So I don't know what an anxiety attack is. I'm with your with Annie here. Like it is not that's a idiosyncratic term, and so it depends. Do I do I need to understand the specifics? Because you probably want to define it phenomenologically. Like what exactly did happen? And that might be important for a client if you're trying to help a client with anxiety. It's like what do they mean by anxiety attack? But it is. I don't think anybody should try to treat that like it's some kind of clinical term. It's just a way of talking about anxiety. Yeah, that's great. Uh, the phenomenology of the individual, as they say, you know, because people will say, oh, I had an anxiety attack. What they might be talking about is a panic attack right? Uh, in terms of the language of the DSM. Uh, but they might be talking about um, something that is not a panic attack and, and, and it could be, uh, and so the term that I wish people would use would perhaps be anxiety episode or yeah. triggered anxiety or right. something. Right. Because anxiety attack, you know, attack sounds more like yeah. a panic attack, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, have you had panic before? Uh, no, I have. You have, I know. Yeah. And, it was awful. It's yeah. a very distinctive feeling. Oh. Um, it's intense doom, uh, like I'm going to die or lose my mind, and I'm positive of it. You know, it's just like, um, th- and I'm describing my panic attacks before I cured myself, but this is uh, back in the um, early mid 90s. Um, confusion, lightheadedness, uh, a feeling like I want to run, but there's nowhere to run. Um, sweating, heart pounding. I mean, just intense heart pounding and just dripping with sweat. And it could last a couple hours and the after effects psychologically could last for months because of how horrible it felt and, and how convinced I, or for lack of a better explanation, I was just left to my own devices and thought, oh, I'm going crazy, you know, like my brain is going to break and that'll be that. And then I went to grad school and took psychopathology with Ned Farley and we got to the anxiety chapter and I read the symptoms of panic disorder and was like, oh, that's what I have. And, and, you know, there were a number of different things I did after that, but pretty much right from there, 90% of my disorder was cured. Just, just, just knowing, knowing, just knowing. Yeah. That's like, terrific. just like, Oh, other people have this. In fact, it's kind of common. This is exactly what I, Oh, I'm because the key was, I'm not going crazy. Right. Like I'm not dying. It's a odd psychological, physiological response 
that feels a certain way, but has absolutely no consequence. You know, um, you can't die from it. I mean, there are very rare cases, I suppose, where if you have heart uh, disease, you know, if you've had a couple heart attacks already or something that a panic attack could stress the system, so to speak. But Well, um, folks with that trouble are more apt to um, over over what's the word like guess the probability of the thing is too high is higher than it really is nobody dies from a panic attack in the most rare of occasions but folks with panic tend to over what's the word i'm looking for do you know what i'm saying uh estimate estimate overestimate vastly the probability that the thing is actually gonna right cause harm yeah 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 uh it's essentially like in terms of the stress it puts on your body, it's essentially like, you know, sprinting around the track, you know, like if you can sprint around the track and not die, right. then you're probably, you know, you, then you're not going to die from a, a panic attack, panic attack right. uh, but it feels very intense oh, and it's all, yeah. and so, um, and they would come out of nowhere, you know, like, yeah. so that's the, so DSM now differentiates between the two. There are, um, expected or unexpected. Oh, no kidding. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, most of the time it's a panic is associated with unexpected. unexpected. Yeah. yeah. Mine were, mm-hmm. um, one, uh, one time it woke me up out of sleep. Oh, I, I wasn't even having a nightmare, you know? Yeah. I was just like, all of a sudden I wake up and I was just, I was camping at the time too, which was not pleasant, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, they would just happen out of nowhere and um, a lot of people will describe that, you know, sometimes there'll be a trigger, you know, like stress or nervousness about something, but it won't seem like, why then? You know, it's like, I've had a lot of stressful moments. Why did it happen then? You know, there's just something about the body. It's a, it's an extreme fight or flight response. What I think is happening in a metaphoric sense is that the system that helps us to fight or flight from danger gets uh, sort of in a feedback loop and it uh, just kind of flies out of control. And then the brain actually interprets the physiological event as a danger. So, you know, you are uh, perceiving your, your, your amygdala, you know, uh, sympathetic nervous response system kind of kicks in and, just kind of randomly, you know, sometimes your heart skips a beat. Sometimes you fart on, you know, when you didn't exp- like your body does weird things. Sometimes. Body noise. Yeah. Body yeah. just kind of, you know, has a little weirdness. And, yeah. and so a little weirdness will happen in your body and your heart will kind of start to pound a little bit. And then your conscious mind notices all that. And your unconscious mind notices all that and says, Oh, I must be dying. Something bad must. So, so then the physiological, so it's a feedback loop when between this anomaly, it gets notices, it gets noticed by the brain, which perceives it as a danger, which causes more fight or flight response, more adrenaline, which causes, you know, more physiological response, which causes more concern from the individual. And it just flies out of control. And one of the things about shock or uh, fight or flight is you're, uh, and this is the thing that really helped me was to understand was that, and maybe Ned Farley explained this to us, um, is that your brain, uh, our fight or flight response, and maybe a lot of animals, is such that when a saber-toothed tiger is about to kill you, you don't need to think 
very clearly. You don't need to do high math. You don't need to plan for the future. You don't, you don't even necessarily need emotional control. What you need are oxygen to your muscles and oxygen to your fear response and oxygen to your coordination. So there are certain parts of the brain that are in charge of heartbeat, in charge of movement, um, and there are other parts of the brain that are in charge of higher thinking and, you know, and those parts of the brain will be deprived of oxygen. Uh, and, and that's why sometimes people will have gastrointestinal problems when they're freaking out because actually the blood doesn't need to be there either. And so um, we have an inability to think our way through a panic attack because our brain doesn't have the oxygen that it normally has. And once I figured that out, I was like, oh, so the key goal when I have that sort of hiccup of, of weird, anomalous, you know, physiological panic is to get brain back to my prefrontal, get blood, get blood and oxygen back to my prefrontal cortex. And so I sit down, I close my eyes and I just re- do relaxation and the panic, uh, if I can even call it that will, will dissipate within like three minutes, you know, whereas in the past that feedback loop would happen and, you know, it was, uh, it would just take off, you know, hell, hell. Right. So, so that's a panic attack. Sure. Um, an anxiety attack, as you were saying, Bob, it's not a clinical term. There's no official diagnosis for an anxiety attack. It's something that people use colloquially, that for God knows what they mean. And it's fine to use that. But again, as you say, Bob, you want to, as a LMFT, you want to ask people what they mean by that. And as a therapist, I would refrain from using that term unless it's the, the parlance of the client yeah. and, and that's the language you have. But I, I would clinicians out there, I would not use the term anxiety attack because it's, it's not well understood unless you follow it up with by anxiety attack. I mean, blah, 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 blah. Right. But honestly, I find that a lot of people don't really understand anxiety or panic. And so let's just try to reduce the confusion out there. Let's stick to, let's probably stick to the terms. You know, I don't like the word attack. Really? I don't think, I don't think we should use that word attack because <clears throat> it implies um, malignancy and victimhood. Huh. How about episode? Episode is a great word. Panic episode. Panic episode, anxiety episode. It doesn't well, imply anything. Is there a better... A more intense word, though, than episode, because episode sounds like, you yeah, know, I hear you. an episode of uh, Friends, you know, it's yeah. like, um, because it's awful, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, panic. yeah. Panic, could there be a, like a, a panic uh, um, hell zone or something? No, I don't know. <laughs> All right, let's take a break. When we get back, let's answer some more questions. What do you say, Bob? Sounds good. All right, we're back from the break. As I always say after the break, if you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Also, you can join our Facebook page, the fan page, and you can also uh, be a good person because uh, that's also uh, available to you. I'm sure you are. You know, All right. Colleen joined the... She's a patron. Oh, she is? Yeah. Why? So that she could listen to our episodes. Oh. Yeah, she said she was listening in the car on her way home last week, and she caught half of our episode, and then the second half was patrons only, and she couldn't hear it. <laughs> I didn't know she listened. That's sweet. She just started. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's nice. Yeah. 
See, even Bob's wife is a patron of the podcast. So <laughs> if you think you're better than Bob's wife, then I don't know what to tell you. It's the only way she can get me to talk to her. <laughs> uh, next email about mental illness deniers. Mm-hmm. Um, she write, Anonymous patron writes in, I'm curious to know how you deal with mental illness deniers and how would you advise other people on how to deal with them? So she goes on to explain, and I'll paraphrase what she says in her email because it's I think it's important. So her sister has severe bipolar and, you know, psychosis, hospitalizations. I think she's around 30 years old and she's her younger sister. Mm. Um, She's been homeless. She was diagnosed in high school and it progressed through her twenties. You know, Uh, the parents at first, you know, the two sisters, their parents were on board with the typical treatment meds. And because that's really all you can do for psychosis like that. She was stabilized on meds, which helped. Um, and then the father read a few books by Robert Whitaker. Have you heard of Robert Whitaker? Apparently, he's a, a famous author that denies psychiatry. Oh. Uh, there's a, a book or a series of books called Mad in America that he wrote. Um, hmm. And uh, the he, he Robert Whitaker claims that psychiatric psychiatric disorders don't exist. Like none of them, including bipolar, huh. you know, uh, similar to Scientology and Tom Cruise. And did you know that Tom Cruise believed that? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. He, um, he's a staunch Scientologist right. and Scientologists believe that not only is the DSM fraud, but they actually, it's almost like a conspiracy theory. They think that psychiatrists are purposefully drugging people or at least unwittingly drugging people and making them sick and keeping them in the system and therefore making money and getting power and all Mm. this kind of stuff. It's Mm. really weird. Yeah. Um, So the father, uh, this patron's father became completely convinced that the medications were actually causing the bipolar symptoms. Hmm. She mentions that he's also a staunch evangelical Christian and he's right wing and he thinks climate change is a hoax and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, Um, so the father is convinced, uh, that psychiatry is bullshit and he actually convinced his daughter, the patron's sister to go off of her meds and lo and behold, the sister became symptomatic and, uh, you know, lots of psychosis and mania and stuff. And the parents have been quote unquote bailing her out as she puts it, I think, you know, paying for bills and this kind of stuff. And as a result, the parents are are in debt now, and it, it's looking like the parents won't be able to retire as a result. And the family is really upset uh, because they're um, worried, obviously, about the sister and her bipolar and psychosis. And they blame the father for uh, you know causing the instability because the father is convinced that meds are bullshit and has convinced the sister. So she has a few questions that I want to review here. Sure. As a therapist, have you ever encountered, uh, uh, have you ever had encounters with mental illness deniers or subscribers to the anti-psychiatry movement? What do you think, Bob? No, I haven't. Not personally, no. Yeah, it's really rare. On the internet, I get questions like this all the time. People want me to talk about, uh, maybe this one, I don't know, but there's other, like um, Saz, I think his name is Thomas Saz or something. Yeah, you've never heard of it. So, like, to us, we're like, huh? 
there are people like that, you know? Yeah. It's sort of like if you work for NASA and you, you learn there's flat earthers, like that's a thing. Yeah. That's, yeah, that, that's a thing. Right. Cause if you work for NASA, like that's so much, that's so far afield from your cultural pocket, you know yeah. what I mean? And to us, like, um, psychiatry denial is, uh, just, you've never even heard of it before. You didn't even know Tom Cruise did it. You know, I, like, I didn't such a weird uh, thing. Um, yeah, so for me, um, I've never experienced it, uh, but I don't treat severe mental illness as yeah, neither, do, either. neither do you. So maybe if we actually had a bipolar client, we might learn that they have an uncle that denies or something. You know, maybe we would. I used to treat folks who had these kinds of troubles, and I don't recall. I don't recall meeting anybody who had that particular bent. Right. Denying bent. And maybe it's self-selecting, too, because if they're yeah. in your office, then, you know, maybe... Yeah, good point. Good yeah, point. I don't know. But but I, I don't know. I think it's pretty rare. Um, I would say the vast majority of people, if someone is psychotic, would assume that there's a good medication out there for someone like that. Um, but I will say that most people, if not all clients that I have... Uh, and have had are overly afraid of medications. Um, not everyone, of course, but like I will talk with someone who uh, will think that maybe, you know, I have ADHD or maybe my kid has ADHD. And, you know, after talking about various different behavioral things we can do and different um, self care things or workarounds. It's like, well, you know, you could try ADHD meds and they're just like, but no, what I, that sounds so horrible. And I'm just like, it's just a stimulant. Like it, it's just a concentrated, um, caffeine pill essentially, um, that is, you know, slow released over a period of time, depending on the, on the medication. Uh, and you've, you've drank caffeine before, right? So it, you're not that that's a drug, you know, are you afraid of caffeine? Uh, and, and the side effects are pretty minimal. Now, if you take an ADHD med for five years, then there will be side effects often like a lack of appetite, which leads to, um, loss of weight and maybe even stunting your growth if you're 10 years old. But if you're 30 years old and you try these meds out, the, the worst things that'll happen to you is you won't be able to sleep at night because your dosage is too high or the, or the release is, is too later in the day. Um, and you know, you take it a couple days, say you don't like it. Like you can't sleep at night, stop taking it and you'll, it'll be gone out of your system effectively, like within a 24 hour period. So, um, so it's not like, uh, it's not like an antipsychotic med or an antidepressant that like alters permanently or for a significant amount of time, you know, the way that your brain operates. Um, also, I talk a lot about, I try to help people reduce their anxiety about taking benzodiazepines, you know, it's like Xanax, Valium, this kind of thing. Um, people, so I'll just give myself. So I, as I've been talking about, I have anxiety and have had anxiety of various forms. It just sort of has morphed over time. I'm constant. It's like a, in the, you know, carnival when you're hitting the whack-a-mole, right? Whack-a-mole. Right. So I had panic disorder for a while, so I cured myself of that. And then I had PTSD around a medical procedure I went through. And oh, that, really? that, that took, yeah, that took me a while to tamp down and self-treat, you know, because 
I can go to a therapist for it, but I know what I need to do. It's, you know, exposure and cognitive therapy. And yeah. so, um, and it's, you know, I've, I've been, it's been effective yeah, and I, you know, but there's a constant buzz of low level. Like you're sort of made that way. Terror, you know? <laughs> and so, um, so anyway, um, I had for many years been against medications, oh, really? benzodiazepines included, uh-huh. until I took courses on psychopharmacology and learned the differences between the different meds oh, and learned that benzodiazepines are essentially a six pack in a, in a pill yeah. that doesn't have a hangover. You know, and yeah. doesn't, and, but it has all the same effects. It, you know, has, it slows down the brain. It, it makes your um, neurons less likely to fire, which has a side effect essentially of reducing anxiety, but right. it also, you know, reduces heart rate, reduces your, in a, in a, you know, you, you, you can't think straight as well. You can still think, but you're, so the way that the brain works, I th- you know, in terms of the inhibition thing. So when you get drunk, people sometimes lose their inhibitions. There's actually some research that refutes that, that says that people put lampshades, lampshades on their head when they're drunk because culturally speaking, we've learned that when you're drunk, you're supposed to do stupid, you know, stupid things. And there were studies at UW where they would give people fake beer and um, I remember I would have friends that would do these studies because, you know, you're in college and sure. they're like, you know, free beer uh, research study. <laughs> and, you know, everyone would show up and they would give some of them placebo beer and watch their behavior. And they would notice that a lot of people would start acting more um, flamboyant or more social or, right. you know, this kind of thing. But anyway, um, the idea is, is that, uh, you know, you slow your brain down and impulses occur to you. And your brain doesn't have time to check it and say, don't do that or don't say that. Or, you know, normally when your brain is working at normal speed, then your brain has the ability to catch things like that and say, nope, don't do that. Don't say that. That's not a good idea because of X, Y, and Z. Um, <clears throat> so when you take a benzodiazepine, you get a little bit like that. Not horribly, but a little bit. But so if you've ever been drunk before, mildly drunk, then you know what it's like to be on a benzo. Um, and that's why you don't want to drink while you're on a benzo because they can um, cause they can compound each other's. Uh, it'd be like if you took a benzo and drank a six packs, it'd be like drinking six, 12 beers, you know, and you could pass out, uh, hurt yourself or even die from your heart stopping, essentially, in the same way you can die from heart stopping with alcohol. Anyway, my point is, is that I uh, late in my life, just like, I don't know, what was it three or four years ago? I had, they, they needed to put in a implant tooth in my, in my face. Okay. Really? Yeah. I, I had a baby tooth oh. that had been, um, in my mouth since I was, uh, you know, a baby. Sure. Since I, you know, got a molar, got, when you get molars, like six months, 12 months, something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Um, and, I was, uh, it was starting to, it, there was no root. Anyway, long story short, I needed to have this procedure done that was pretty involved. They needed to, you know, cut my gum. They needed to drill into my jaw several times because they use uh, a small drill, then a bigger drill, then a big, because if they use a big drill with the first drill, they could crack your, your, if you've ever worked on wood and drills and stuff. 
anyway, so they, it was like an hour procedure and they'd be drilling and then they'd be installing this, this metal, uh, screw, essentially the, the female part of a screw thing, you know? Um, and I was like, are you kidding? Like that is going to wreck me. Cause I was still kind of recovering from my medical PTSD. I was like, you know, there's no amount of Novocaine that's going to save me from that one. You know, like just prior to that procedure, they needed to pull out the baby tooth. Right. And so I, and, and that took no joke, three seconds. So I lived across the street from the dentist and I, uh, walked out my door, walked into the dentist. They were ready for me. I sat down on the chair uh, the, he, you know, the dentist was there. He got his pliers. He pulled the tooth out. I was back in my house nine minutes after I walked out the door. That's yeah. how, that's how fast the procedure was. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> nine minutes from door to door. Okay? Drive through dentistry. Yeah. So, it, and that's how easy he just, he just grabbed it with pliers and pulled out. Didn't hurt, bled a little bit. Cause you know, there's still some kind of hanging on my, I had, you know, I had an anxiety episode. Uh, it wasn't a panic attack, but it was an anxiety episode yeah. because my body, even though my mind's like, who cares? It's just a baby tooth. It's, it's, it's like getting a, a scab ripped off or something, sure. you know, like minor issue. Yeah. Facts and logic did it though. But the body doesn't like it. Yeah, and so yeah. the, uh, so my, so heart racing about it. This was, you know, this was three seconds of procedure and I'm thinking, how am I going to get through an hour of someone drilling into my jaw? This is not going to, I'm this, I'm going to freak out. This is not going to be good. But the, so I tell my dentist who, uh, fellow Asian brother, and he's like, you know what? I have the exact same problem. He's like, I, I completely flip out when I go to the dentist. He's a dentist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's like, um, I have a wonderful drug for you. Yeah. It's called Valium. And yeah. I'm like, really? Like from the 60s? Yeah, like right. mommy's little helper? Uh, isn't that what they used to call it? No, that's a different one, but nonetheless, Valium. What, what, was, what was mommy's little helper? Um, it's a stimulant. I can't remember what it's called. Oh, the stimulant. The yellow pills, yeah. Uh, uh, I thought it was Valium. Was it Valium? I don't know, but yeah. uh, you would know better than I would. You're a little older than me. <laughs> Uh, so the, uh, so he gives me this prescription and he says, okay, so take, um, there, there are four pills, take one the night before, uh, just to kind of, you know, get you loose, take two, um, just before, take two, like 20 minutes before coming in or an hour before coming in or something. And then we'll keep one just in case like you're freaking out during the procedure. Well, I'm so like averse to taking meds oh, yeah. that I didn't take the one the night before, but I definitely took the two before, um, before the procedure. I, it was like a massage. Yeah. I sat in that chair. We're, we're, I'm not talking like I was on a scale from, you know, from one to 10. Like I wasn't like a two, I was like a negative three on the anxiety scale. Right. I was like serene. I'm like, huh? huh I, it, the the drug makes you feel a little euphoric. So yeah. I felt better than I would have if I was just watching TV at home, you right. know, like it. And afterwards, you know, I was a little, little loopy, but not too bad. Um, I, you know, was probably a little giddy walking in and out of the office. Um, I took a two hour nap when I got home. Mm. 
Um, and I woke up and everything was fine. And I was like, that is a wonderful drug. Benzodiazepines are wonderful. And so when I'm talking with people who suffer from anxiety episodes, panic or otherwise, and I explain to them, you know, there's this drug that uh, can really be great for, uh, for moments where you are either having an episode that has a sudden onset or you know you're going to go into a situation that is going to be uh, triggering to your anxiety. Now, you don't want to take benzos all the time. They can be addictive. They can also have, they can have an actual effect on the brain as anything you know, could. Um, there are bad things that can happen uh, if you take them for a long period of time. But what I found was that because my body went through the procedure in a state of serenity, the next time I went to the dentist, my body was like, oh, we've been here before. So the next time I went to the dentist, I didn't need the medication. No kidding. Yeah. That's so, terrific. So, the, so, for example, let's say you're out there and you're like, I suffer from extreme social anxiety. Oh, yeah. And when I have to give a speech or I have to go to a party or something, like, I, you know, I can't even do it. Well, let's say you take a effective dosage of Valium, Xanax, and you go through that instance uh, with little anxiety. Well, the next time you go into it, you might not need the med because your body has, you know, been, a, been habituated to that thing. You've, you know, your body... You're tricking your body into believing, or you're convincing, I guess, biologically speaking, that the situation is not to be feared. And uh, anyway, so so back to the question, you know, from the from the um, from the patron, um, there are uh, I haven't come across people who are like conspiracy theorists against against psychiatry. But I myself and many other people around me, clients included, are um, most people I find to be uh, overly afraid of particular meds. Have you found that to be true? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of reluctance. Absolutely. That you think is not justified? It's not justified. Yeah. Yeah. Meds are generally safe. Right. Yeah. Um. She goes on to ask, what about your personal life? Um, which I think we've already talked about. Do you have anything personal you want to share about? Yeah, I had a prejudice against antidepressants, and then I got depressed in, let's see, it's probably nine years ago, something like that. And it was so awful. It was I hadn't been that depressed since my 20s. And um, saw shrink, put me on Welbutrin, and um, Welbutrin made me dizzy every afternoon from 4 p.m. till around 9.30 or till I went to sleep or something. And I did not give a shit. I'll take Dizzy any day over that hell of depression. And um, I'm thinking about tapering off of it um, in the spring. Oh, you're still taking it? Oh, yeah, I still take it. Um, feeling better was its own reward. So so you took Welbertson and yeah. it m- mitigated your depression. Yeah, and, and my prejudice against my own personal prejudice against using meds. Oh, that's not for me or oh, weak people, blah, 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 which, you know, is not something I would ever say to anybody I was working with or even think really, or even really believe, but, um, inside me, a hard little knot of, um, rebellion lived on. And right. I don't, I don't have that now. Right. Yeah. I, I have the exact same sentiment about, um, benzos. Yeah. It was like, 
it was a little bit rebellious. It's like, I don't need that or I can do without it. But really it's just fear of the unknown. Yeah. It's like, uh, well, you know, what happens when you put a pill in your brain, you know? And it's like, you know, there are, they're safe, they're tested with monitoring. And if the side effects get too bad, then you just wean yourself off. You don't take it. Um, but man, when they work, you know, how wonderful that is. Uh, she goes on to say, should I try to change his mind using logic, reason, anecdotal evidence, and scientific facts? What do you think, Bob? Uh, it probably won't work. Um, I, I don't know. The thought that I occurred is, it would, would it be helpful to point out the causal relationship between her stopping the meds and her increase in symptoms? It might. Um, ultimately, though, mm, you know, someone's going to either pay attention to that or not, or they're not. And so if they're not, I don't think beating somebody down with facts and logic is going to do anything except um, uh, promote their own resistance. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, it's, it's a tough one. It is. Uh, I have thought about this a lot because there's so much misinformation and there always has been. Right. And, I think everyone has family members who believe in extremely non-scientific notions. And um, it's just really hard, especially when they're being pumped with misinformation and they're being, and there's a certain uh, subsection of our society right now who are being pumped with uh, false information and they're being pumped with the notion that liberal scientists are lying to you. And so there's no way to counteract, you know, if you come in with a quote unquote liberal notion, it's already been disproved just because you're a liberal and you're talking, you know what I mean? Or you're a psychiatrist and you're talking, it's like, well, if all psychiatrists or anyone who believes in psychiatry is either a conspiracy element or has, you know, drank the Kool-Aid, then as soon as you open your mouth, it's like you're already done. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a tough one. For me, what I tell people to do, because I've, I've talked with other people about this sort of thing, and I've, and I've done it in my own life, is don't often people think about it as like an intervention. It's like, okay, I'm going to sit my dad down, I'm going to tell him like the science, and I'm going to show him this documentary or something like that. And that might work, but it's probably not going to work. What what I find is more effective, it's still not likely to work, but it's more likely to work than otherwise, is to go on a campaign. So um, she went, She gave some details like her and her dad are having a tough time in their relationship. So um, the first thing to do, if, if you really wanted to change his mind, if that was really what you wanted to do, which isn't your responsibility, by the way, but if you really wanted to do it, then... You want to go on a campaign. So at the first step is like establish a relationship where you don't talk about anything controversial. It's just like, you know, every three weeks, call him on the phone, talk about anything other than, you know, things that perturb the two of you. So then you kind of get a routine now and you get some love, you get some connection. Everyone benefits from that. Right. Then you start to subtly try to influence. Um not trying to convince, but just just drop a few things. Just be like, you know what? Sometimes I just wonder about, you know, sister, that uh, I just wonder if she would be better off if she tried 
you know, taking her meds again. I don't know. Just, you know, just throwing it out there. You know, and then he'll have a bunch of things to say. And then you just say, well, I don't know. It just, I hear you. But at the same time, you know, when he was, when she was taking the meds, it seemed like it was working. I don't know. Just, just throwing it out there. You're not pressuring. You're not insulting him. You're offering your opinion. Um, You're not, uh, you know, um, uh, ambushing him with a bunch of blah, blah, blah. The other thing, you know, as Bob is saying, is, you know, you don't want to expect too much. Um, people, I, I've experienced this, th- these sorts of people personally and professionally. Um, sometimes they're referred to as having a thought disorder. Have you heard this this term before, Bob? Oh, thought disorder for sure. But are we talking about the dad or the sister? The dad. The dad. Right. Um, what is your working definition of thought disorder? Oh, uh, it's not something us regular psychotherapists run into very often, but I would only be guessing. Are we talking about psychosis? Or are we talking about just somebody who's got a, um, a, a missing links in logic or what? Right. So thought disorder is a broad term in the clinical parlance yeah. that can refer to as severe things as psychosis, but also a, a, a number of other uh, subclinical or um, other thought issues that that can present in people that are often ignored. One of which is, as you say, an inability to uh, think logically. Yeah. An in, uh, or to uh, the or when someone thinks rather tangentially, or uh, but they don't qualify for a psychotic disorder. Um, we tend to think of like, okay, people have schizophrenia, or they don't. But you know. Think of it like there's there's spectrums here, you know. Um, Your brain can be disordered in a lot of minor ways. And one of the ways that they found is that there are certain people who have trouble with logic. And I've run into people like this before. And it can be very frustrating because they're not mentally ill, but they actually have a consistent pattern of concluding odd things, you know. Like... I was talking like flat earthers, for example, I would imagine that a good number of them would qualify for an observational assessment of a thought disorder, you know, to conclude that the earth is flat, you know, and to, to, um, adhere and, and hold the very weird explanations for it's like, well, so why does the sun rise? You know, they have a very weird model of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you would really have to lack a certain logical ability. And it's not necessarily related to IQ. It can just be a, um, a quirk. And what I find is that the people, there's a certain group of people that I'm thinking about personally and professionally who have trouble with logic and they think, they think in very emotional ways. Right. So, it feels right to them. And so therefore it is right. And then, and no amount of logic can refute their feeling, um, uh, conclusion. Yeah. Have you run into people like that before? Well, everybody has. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have an example of it? Uh, an example of somebody who had resistance. Let's see. I keep getting this picture of my dad, but I'm not really sure why, except he would reach emotional conclusions about things. And then, um, um, I think gather facts to pseudo support them and arguing just stabilized his resistance. Mm. So it doesn't work. Right. 
Yeah, I have found, again, flat earth people. I actually know a flat earth person, and uh, I knew him before I knew he was a flat earther, and I liked him, and yeah. I thought he was a regular guy. Yeah. Normal, young, Seattle kid guy, you know, and his, I don't know, he's probably like 30 or something. Yeah. And then he turns to me, and he just starts, you know, he's like, you know, I was watching this documentary about the flat earth. At first, I thought it was stupid, but, you know, they make some good points. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. Um, you know, there are, and I, there are people that I know personally who believe in all the pseudoscientific claims that mm -hmm. people make. Uh, I won't even go into them, but um, the, the other thing that I told her over email was that she is, she's, the whole family's in a real tough spot. You know, yeah. you have a sister who is suffering from bipolar, psychotic episodes, uh, homeless, can't hold a job, wow. um, could die. Yeah. You know, could, could kill herself, could be harmed. You know, it's, it's a very scary place to be. And everyone in the family is stressed out about that naturally. Right. Um, probably the parents more than the kids. That's parents. And, you're, the dad is freaking out, doesn't know what to do. Yeah, he doesn't. And he has resorted to something quite weird. But it's a reaction to the stress. And one of the things that families will do is they will scapegoat an, an easier person to blame. And it's you can't blame the sister for having bipolar but you can blame the dad for being rigid in his thinking. Sure, sure. A... For being, you know, an evangelical Christian when you don't like that, or right. being anti climate change for being white right wing or something. You, you, right. you know, you you can do that. It's it it feels more congruent. It feels easier. It's safer. But really, what's happening is this family is going through something incredibly tough. Yeah, really hard. And if I was a family therapist working with this family, I would get them off the whole topic of meds or no meds. I would just say, you know, let's, let's just talk about the stress, you know, let's just talk about how this is terrible and how she's never not going to have bipolar. You know, she's going to be suffering from this disorder probably for the rest of her life. Yeah. And we're just going to be trying to help her with the, with the symptoms. Um, um, I know people with bipolar, and once they become diagnosed and they become, you know, uh, severely symptomatic, they're really never the same again. Mm. You know what I mean? Have you, have you ever known anyone like that? It's like, yeah, I have. If they're on medication, then they're different from that because the medication right. can affect them. But even if they're not on the medication, they're just different. You know, like there's something, their personality has changed. They're not yeah. the same person anymore. In some ways, they're, um, it's almost like you have to grieve the person and yeah. accept this, this sort of new version of the person. Yeah. This isn't always the case, of course, um, in mo moderate forms of bipolar. I would say this isn't true. But for severe, yeah. um, is, that, is that what you yeah. think? Yeah, yeah. That is, yeah, what you're describing I think is real and um, grieving makes all the sense in the universe. Yeah. And it's tough, you know, it's sad. And yeah. so that's what I was telling you over email. It's just like, I think that's the main thing your, your family is suffering from. And 
I think your foot, you know, you and your other siblings are probably focusing on this issue with the dad is because the other thing is like how influenced was the daughter by the dad? Do you know what I mean? The, the daughter could have said, well, my dad has this wacky idea about medication, but I'm going to still take my meds. You right. know what I mean? And a lot of people with bipolar go off their meds because they just don't feel like taking you. Do you know why they do that? Well, uh, one thing happens is I feel like crap. I take the meds. I feel better. Oh, I'm better. I don't need the meds no more. Then I go off the meds. Then I fall back into. And um, lots of times it takes people, you know, months or years to kind of come to a place of acceptance about the thing. And um, they go through relapse and relapse and relapse again and again. Right. And... Um, and the medications aren't great. You know, they have side effects. So there's reasons why you wouldn't want to take it. Yeah. Um, plus when you become hypomanic, you believe that you can do anything, you know, you, you yeah. have a sudden burst of energy, self-esteem plans to do great things. And the medication can be seen as getting in your way. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, she asks here, what would you do if a mental illness scenario was directly impacting a mentally ill person's ability to take care of themselves? In my mind, this is no different than anti-vaxxers or Christian scientists who refuse to take their children to the doctor when they're sick. Oh, well. I, f I feel like at some point there should be a legal intervention. What do you think? No, no. The, the thing is, is it's not the dad. It's the sister. And we agree that people over the age of 18 are allowed to make decisions for themselves, whatever those decisions happen to be. We, we, have, we are believers in civil rights, and so she has the right to choose what she wants to do. Now, in the instance where there's an acute threat to life, um, um, then, then we've, we've all, I think each state has its own version of the rules of you know, when you can commit somebody and um, compel them into you know, treatment or whatever. But even then it's only temporary. It's temporary. But, but <clears throat> like a week at the most. Yeah. So there isn't, we, we've, we have a, we, we are believers in civil rights as a, as a society or a culture or whatever you want to call it. And so there isn't really, um, a mechanism for the thing that, that this person is wishing for. And I would wish for it too, if I were her, because it's your sister. Right. Right. Yeah. I agree. Um, yeah, there's no legal recourse other than if you believe she's going to kill herself or kill someone else um, because she's not a child and yeah. she's, she's not a vulnerable adult. Right. Um, so uh, if she was a child, then you would have a case. If she were 13, you could report the father to CPS for sure. Right. Um, and CPS, they take situations like that pretty seriously. Right. Medical neglect, they call it. Um, having said all that, there are some things about what the dad believes in that are actually true. Um, you know, people who depend on the DSM prescribers, people who have uh, just completely accepted the DSM as like gospel mm -hmm. and hard science, um, will say things and do things that are philosophically problematic and, and medically problematic. You know, there are, there are labels in the DSM that we could say are, quote-unquote, hard science. Psychosis isn't something that we make up, you know. It's not something that people fake. I mean, you can't fake it, but those who are legitimately psychotic, it's not. It's not something that 
is you know weakness or um, a regular variance of human behavior you know it's uh, or stress related you know what i mean it's it's in all likelihood a biological phenomenon that we can't see because we don't have the ability to measure such things in the brain but i'm positive and once we do have the ability to measure the brain in such a way to identify such things we'll say oh this person has a psychotic pathway or a psychotic system um, or a psych or they have a system that lends itself to psychosis or something um, bipolar true bipolar is a legit hard science reality PTSD, panic disorder, dissociation, these, these kinds of things are, are real. You know, there, yeah. there, there's no debate. It's like, you can't, you can't say like, it's a social construction. You can't say PTSD is a social construction. It's, it's a real phenomenon that exists in human beings. It's pretty, pretty convincing. Yeah. But there are softer things, you know, personality disorders, for example, um, a, you know, oppositional defiant disorder, oh, wow. adjustment disorders, paraphilias, gender dysphoria, these kinds of things. Right. Pretty sure in 50 years, the DSM will have different uh, language or just eliminate certain things. Um, whereas 50 years from now in the DSM, psychosis is still going to be there. It might be called something different, you know, but it'll be the same thing. Now, but I know people who are sort of completely in the DSM world. You and I, we don't depend on the DSM. Like someone can come to you and me and say, the DSM is bullshit and that doesn't threaten our life at all. Like it, it's like, okay, DSM is bullshit. That's, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> uh, there are certainly parts of the DSM that are bullshit. I agree, you know, because you and I don't, our money, our livelihood doesn't depend on people believing in the DSM. Many people come to us. We don't even have to diagnose them. Uh, and they probably don't qualify for a diagnosis, you know, um, and they're they're talking about relationship problems and grief issues and self esteem issues and uh, divorce questions and recovering from divorce, parenting advice, you know, next stage of life. There, you know, this isn't DSM stuff, so we don't care. But there are some people who you know do assessments and court things or oh, yeah. uh, or medication uh, prescribers. They depend on. People saying DSM is hard science, you know, and because if because if if you if you state uh -huh. that the DSM is socially constructed, then they're like, well, everything I'm, every decision I'm I'm making clinically is based on the notion that DSM is scientifically rigorous. You right. know what I mean? Um, <clears throat> also, some prescribers. So you know, uh, your your dad has read stuff probably that talks about prescribers are too in love with their medications you know um have you run into that before oh yeah like what do they do they over prescribe yeah yeah like when i worked at the psych hospital 100 years ago many of the children kids 4 to 13 were given melaril which is um, a liquid form of an antipsychotic and yet the incidence of psychosis in children is actually really low and melaril it's, you know, shit, man. What are we doing? Did it just mellow them out? Yeah, I think it was sedating. Make, make, you know. So, so you have a kid who yeah. has been abandoned by their parents or periodically attachment injured. Yeah. And have parents maybe that are addicts or have parents who are depressed or 
you know, some kind of stress. And the kid has, lo and behold, some behavioral issues. Yeah. And you, and if you're a psychiatrist who is of this certain ilk, every, and you only have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. And so it's like, well, I have a medication that will help with that. Right. And the parents are like, or the foster parents or adoptive parents or somebody is like, thank God. Yeah. Give me a pill. Right. You give the, the pill to the kid, the kid's mellow. There's some side effects like, you know, they sleep a lot or they're a little out of it or they don't do as well in school or something. But they're not jumping off the walls. They're not punching me in the face. They're not throwing things at me. They're not running out the door. Right. Uh, so, great. It's working. Right. Uh, instead of uh, trying to help the kid build stronger attachments, help the kid uh, grieve whatever they've been through, right. help the kid understand that they have power in the world, asking the kid what they want. Um, and that kind of works really hard. It takes a long time. Yeah. And perhaps it's more expensive uh-huh. and, uh, and isn't guaranteed to work. You're not going to get immediate bang for your buck. Right. So, uh, so, so there are certainly situations like that. Um, another thing that I often point out to people, uh, and I get a, even other uh, trainees of mine, cause they're not medical professionals. They don't necessarily know this. Like, do you know the, you're, so you're on Weber and you're on, it's an, is that an antidepressant officially? Do you know the effectiveness percentage compared to placebo when it comes to antidepressants? Do you have any idea? It's, it's actually comparable. Right. right. Like placebo is shown to be about as effective as the drugs. Right. Most people don't know that. Mm-hmm. You know, most people think it's like, oh, you, antidepressants, well, they work. You know, people think of it like, I don't know, aspirin or something. It's like, well, if you're in pain, you take aspirin yeah. and it works. You, you know? got diabetes, the insulin. Yep. Insulin, right. There's, Rock and roll. There, right. There's a, there's a, it works for everybody. Yeah. And antidepressants, the, so they take again a thousand depressed people. They give 500 people placebo and 500 people Welbutrin or um, Prozac or um, one of the other ones. And especially as time has gone on, they have found that the placebo effect, you know, helps about 25% of people or something like that. It's in that range. Mm-hmm. People on the antidepressant, the effect will be something like 30% yeah. or 35% or something. So in essence the drug only helps really something like five to 10% of people. Apparently you're one of those people or well, at least, maybe. at least apparently I'm okay with being a placebo guy. <laughs> right. Exactly. As long as you know, the side effects aren't too, what are the side effects of Webergen? Dry mouth. Uh, that's probably the only one I have. That's it. Yeah. That's, you know, quite shocking to a lot of people. You know, yeah. like, wait, so, right. Uh, Antidepressants are only yeah right. You know, I mean, how many how many antidepressant commercials have you seen on TV this week? Well, yeah. you don't watch TV, but there's a lot of them. Yeah. Well, I watch TV when I watch football, so I see some some. But so yeah, the notion that antidepressants work, you know, we don't understand how the brain works. Nah. Uh, depression is one of those you know particularly hard things to figure out. It's you know anxiety actually like benzodiazepines for example they work. Yeah. Um, ongoing SSRIs for anxiety again less less likelihood of working. So my point is, is that you have prescribers that are, oh, you're depressed, you know, take this, let's sure. try this med. And there's this assumption that like something's going to work. But like, if you look at the percentages, it's, it's not a high likelihood that anything's going to work. Yeah. And, 
and some prescribers will, are responsible and will know this and actually explain this to people. I think maybe younger prescribers. I don't know. But uh, but some prescribers, they have completely ignored this notion. And they're just like, well, anecdotally, I find it works all the time. You sure. know what I mean? And right. it, so they're, they're not even following their own, their own, their own uh, science. Also, I have found some prescribers don't emphasize the side effects enough. You know, like I had a, a client come to me and a couple and the wife was on an antidepressant and the, I didn't know that cause I just didn't ask, but the, the couple were having problems with sex and mm. she had no libido. Right. And over time, you know, it's like, you know, sorry, I oh, are on any medication or but she's like, Oh yeah, I'm taking an antidepressant. I'm like, so when did you start taking that? She's like, well, you know, a number of years ago. Did you have a lib- more libido before that? She's like, uh, yeah, I guess I did. Well, it's possible your antidepressant has completely eliminated your uh, desire to have sex. You know, like that can happen. And she was like, really? And I'm like, you know, how does your medical professional not mention that to you? Like, by the way, you know, there's a trade-off. You know, we can give you this pill. It can help with your depression, but it could also completely eliminate your desire to have sex. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't take antidepressants just so you have a libido back, but I'm saying like people sometimes are not explained sure. the the possibilities. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, so that's another critique of the psychiatry profession for sure. Um, meds are both over over prescribed and under prescribed. You know, there are uh, some med. You know, there's lots of people that are taking too many meds as, as you were talking about, but there's a lot of other people who aren't given any meds. Yeah. You know, there's uh, ADHD medication is a good example of this. Uh, there are, there's a Venn diagram, you know, you have people who actually have ADHD and, and benefit from the ADHD medication in the middle. But then you have on, on the other, on, on the left side, you have people who have ADHD, but aren't taking meds. And on the right side, you have people who without ADHD, uh, or people who are taking meds without ADHD. And it's this, you know, weird sort of landscape. So so ADHD meds are both overprescribed and underprescribed. Um, I once had a client who uh, came to me with a lot of different ailments and a lot of different issues psychologically. And at some point I was like, how many meds are you on? And she kind of gave me a list and I said, could you like get me your medical records so I can look them over, you know, cause this is when, after I had taken some classes in psychopharmacology and biology and stuff. So I was like, I, th- I, was, I was thinking, well, I could probably sift through some of this stuff. I discovered she was on dozens of meds, many of which have massive side effects psychologically, many of which are pulling her in different directions in terms of sleep and, and mental ability and, and energy wise. And I was like, who's monitoring all this? And she's like, well, I have like 10 doctors and da, da, da. And I'm like, I think I now have to become that person, you know, because no one else is. And so I had to actually coordinate all this medical care and say, like, Does, do you know that she's on this other med? They're like, oh, yeah, maybe that's a problem. Like, yeah, that's a problem. Like, that we got to, you know, because she didn't know. She was just following directions. She would go to her physician, sure. give a complaint. And a lot of times it's hard to know, but I remember hypothesizing that, like at least half of her complaints were side effects to the drugs and she was given more drugs to, to, so, you know, these cases happen 
and people who have Scientologists, for example, Tom Cruise, uh, this patron's father, they have a legitimate gripe against this. You know, it's it's legit. Yeah. And, you know, there are absolutely cases where this – but this doesn't mean we have to throw out the entire field of psychiatry, you know. Um. Uh, another example here that I'll just conclude with is I had a client, she was 16 years old and she went to a psychiatrist and sometimes there's, they have very short interviews, you know, just like five minutes and it's like, Oh, okay. You have depression. Uh, you qualify for the, you know, the diagnosis of major depressive episode gave her an antidepressant and that was it. You know, she's like, okay, I'll take this antidepressant. And then I interview her and I find out that she's, you know, grieving a number of different losses. She has a lot of stress from life and school and her family life. Her self-esteem is, has never been good. She's been traumatized, you know, et cetera. And I'm like, well, of course her mood isn't going to be very great. Is, is this a biological problem, you know, or is this a normal reaction to the cards that she drew in life, you know? And so, um, so that's another problem that we, do you ever see that problem in your oh, practice? I think that happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you have a lot of uh, borderline people in your DBT groups and, um, they, uh, might also have major depression, of course. Yeah. But, um, when you suffer from relational trauma, you're going to have some ups and downs in your mood and, uh, will be mistaken either for depression or bipolar, right? right. Do you get a lot oh, of that? Oh, all the time. I, I, every time anybody says bipolar disorder to me, I'm like, big grain of salt here, guys, because maybe you do, maybe you don't. It certainly gets overdiagnosed. Right. Yeah. Someone who is extremely upset suddenly um, and uh, because they're going through a divorce or they got fired from their job or um, – you know, their father died or, so, you know, just something happened and they they have an extreme emotional reaction and they're like, oh, this person has bipolar. <laughs> I'm always just like, because bipolar is a very specific condition, you know, that is really quite different from someone with borderline having an emotional reaction. Yeah. You know what I mean? It is. That is diff- you have to see it. Maybe you have to see it to recognize that it is. But once you see it, it's not. It's not easy to mistake. Right. It's very different. Mania, psychosis, mm. schizophrenia yeah. uh, is, you know, it's really quite particular. Yeah. Uh, someone who is extremely agitated from, uh, from, a, from a personality disorder sort of issue um, is just an exaggerated form of like what everyone goes through. Um, mania is not an exaggerated form of what people go through. Mm, yeah. Mania is like is you know it's a severe mental illness that's why we call it that it's like yeah. there's you're mentally ill at yeah. that point you're not making sense you, you, you see things you hear things you you have very very strange ideas about things that last for a long time yeah, it lasts a long time um you're not just like really really upset about being fired from your job no you know uh yeah it's it's quite boggling to Ugh. the mind uh, and I find psychiatrists, I've known psychiatrists who don't know that difference. Oh, man. Because I think they only see people for five minutes, 15 minutes at a time. They don't really understand personality disorders, but they definitely understand bipolar. Right. Because bipolar, you can identify in five minutes. You know, you, you get someone that's manic for five minutes and, you know, maybe 10 minutes of observation, you can be like, oh, okay, 
you know, mm-hmm. or you ask someone about a past manic episode, you know, they're like, oh, well, I believed I was Jesus and I was yeah. running all over town. And um, I thought the cops were, you know, uh, the devil and, you know, these kinds of things. Right. And you're like, oh, okay, some kind of psychosis there. Um, whereas, uh, uh, you know, borderline narcissistic, histrionic, dependent, you know, these kinds of uh, paranoid personality, for example, you know, these are um, – Things that take a long time to figure out, and it's it's just it's really upsetting. You know, I had a client that had a personality disorder that that was, while I was treating them, had a episode, emotional episode because they were relationally uh, challenged, and um, went to the hospital in a, a crisis, and was diagnosed with bipolar and given meds. Right, and I was like, no. Well, at what point were you going to call me and ask me? What I think, you know, yeah. like the person who's been diagnosing, assessing, and treating this person for a long time, but this this hospitalist, ah, bipolar meds, and when he came to me, I was like, "You don't have bipolar." I mean, and I said, "Unless you've left something out," <laughs> and so I was like, "Don't take those meds. Go back to them and tell them that your primary clinician does not assess you as having bipolar." Oh, let's be clear, <laughs> folks, that. Um uh, it's outside the scope of our licensure if you're a psychologist or a counselor to give people advice about whether or not to take meds. So, so you you want to be careful. It is, and you know, thanks for pointing that. On the other side, there are certain psychologically trained individuals like myself who uh, have enough um, expertise in education, supervision, and practice to say some things. Yeah. Uh, telling someone to go against the, another physician's orders is not one of those things, but telling someone that um, they probably don't need to take medication for bipolar is one of those things. Um, and it's, that's the difference between making a good clinical assessment and um, protecting yourself from liability. Right. I actually had a, a supervisee... Um, Actually, we got into a big conflict about this because she thought I was, I can't remember what she was upset about, but um, she had a client who had been taking meds for a long time and had decided to go off of their meds and told my supervisee, um, you know, I'm going off my meds. I don't like it anymore. And my supervisee was like, oh, that's a, you know, it's a good choice or I support that choice or um and then, but the client had had a history of suicidal behavior and thoughts, and and so that's all I needed to hear was change in medication, um, not communicating with your prescriber, suicidal risk. Therapist, my supervisee knows about that and is not doing anything, not e- and not even amping up the suicide, uh, you know, prevention work, and I you know, said to the supervisee, I said, um, uh, you know, it's not likely a problem, but if something happens, you have just completely opened a wide open door to liability because the, you know, that the client is going off of a recommendation from another, uh, clinician and you don't know anything about that, um, issue officially, and 
you're not amping up your suicide prevention stuff. So it's like, and so my super, my supervisee was just like, well, you know, what are you saying? Like, but, but I don't think the client needs to be taking the medication. I'm like, okay, great. But you know, you don't really know that (laughs) one, two, uh, the society doesn't see it that way. Like, that's fine. You can have that opinion, but the legal system and society doesn't, doesn't see you as a valid evaluator of such a thing. So, um, you know, you might be right, but if something happens, like just standing up strongly and saying that you believe something in court, isn't going to hold any water. You know, I imagine you wanted that person to protect themselves from, you know, risk. Yeah. And me, cause I'm supervising. Oh, well shit. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the, in conclusion, uh, to all this stuff, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's tough, a tough situation, heartbreaking to have a family member go through it. I've personally been through that myself. Have you ever had someone close to you go through uh, develop bipolar, you know, before your eyes? No, I have it or schizophrenia or anything like that. No. Yeah, it's it's I mean, you can imagine, you know, oh, you've yeah. been with clients. It's the worst Yeah. Um, to have, like I said, someone's personality essentially change. Uh, to some degree, not always, but you know, that's tough to lose them as a person that you can depend on. That's tough to worry about them, that something horrible is going to happen to know that something bad is going to happen. I mean, so, you know, the person writing in, she's like, my sister's not on her meds, you know, bipolar is a cyclical thing. And she's known to do, you know, pretty erratic things. Something bad's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. And then she's just going to recover from that. The parents are going to bail her out. She's not going to take her meds. And then it's just going to happen all over again. And this is someone you love. This is your sister. And you just know that if we had a different system, that you could actually do something about it. You know, if, if, if our system didn't value adult freedoms the way that we do it for this population there would be a you know a more robust involuntary response to these kinds of situations and and it's heartbreaking it's terrifying it's awful and what do you do like just just stand by and watch the train wreck like you do nothing that doesn't seem right yeah but you're powerless what the hell are you supposed to do and the person you're trying to help you know if someone has cancer, you're bo- everyone's on the same team. Everyone's trying to get rid of the cancer, including the patient. You yeah. know, someone has bipolar and they're anti meds. The very person you're trying to save actually <coughs> does not want you to help them. Yeah, not refusing the treatment. Yeah, and so you're forcing someone to better their lives. It's a very, very tough situation yeah. to be in. Again. An easy answer is just like, well, just distance yourself, move on. Oh. But, you know. It's sister. Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. You know? um, there's no, as you said right at the beginning, there's no easy answer. You're just, yeah. it's like, you're just kind of screwed. Um, powerless, train wreck. Things are working against you and your own family. You're sad. You're scared. You're upset, angry, um, worried. It's. Yeah, there's just there's just no easy answer to that. Um, let's not end on a depressing note, Bob. All right. Um, what are you happy about this week? 
I got certified in uh, EFT. Yeah, in emotionally focused therapy. Oh, for yeah, couples. we should talk about that at some point. Yeah, that's thrilling. Yeah, it only uh, took seven years. Seven years. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. So EFT is emotionally focused therapy. It's a uh, form of therapy that's commonly used in couples therapy. Very powerful. And uh, why did you want to become certified? Um, well, I didn't, I didn't originally. I just wanted to learn it and be competent. But then I want to do more of that kind of work. So about 18 months ago, I started thinking about what you got to do to get this stuff to happen. It's quite a lot. So I did it. it. took a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. And then the seven years was like supervised. And- supervised and practice and my own couple counseling and... Yeah. Oh, you have to go through your no, own. No, no, no. I just did. Oh. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. I was like, wow, it's very psychoanalytic. That, that, that's rigorous, right? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah so, <coughs> so now you can, on your website and your cards, you can call yourself a certified, certified EFT practitioner. I can. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Only seven in the city. Only what? Seven. Only seven certified EFT people in the city? Yeah. Wow. Counting me. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. So anyways, that's one of the things I'm pleased about. It's exciting news. Yeah. Got a very nice letter from the person that certified me, also my teacher, which was as awesome as actually being certified. Oh. Yeah, it was really nice. I had to submit tape of session, and she was just really, you know, lovely lady anyways. But well, you want to give her a shout out? Yeah, Gail. Thank you. Gail, Gail. Palmer up Gail there in Canada. Oh, in Canada. Yeah. Gail Palmer. Yeah. Isn't Sue Johnson Canadian? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the uh, EFT people, the big wigs are Canadian. Uh, was Leslie Greenberg? Um, yeah, the, actually, Sue Johnson was his was his student. Right. Yeah, he's Canadian too. Canadian. Oh. Anyways, that's me. How about you? Uh, I'm getting over a cold, which nice. is great. I had it was the coffee phlegmy situation. Ooh. So there's a few days there where I was coughing like um, <coughs> I still am a little bit, but you know, fits where you feel like you're going to pass out. Yeah. Cause you, you can't breathe. Right. You know? Um, so be through that, that it feels good to be on the tail end of that. Yeah. Um, what else do I feel good about talking into a new mic, talking into a new microphone? Uh, I have basically been on a shoestring budget for the podcast for the entire 10 years of the podcast. But this let, you know, Christmas season, I was like, ah, you know, I'll splurge and actually buy a microphone. I'll do research. And so I did tons of research on like the best sounding mics. And, um, and this one, uh, one, uh, it is, uh, not an impressive microphone. It's very small, but, um, but it's also great because it's you know I it's it's small so it's not imposing so I, I don't have to shove my face in the microphone like you have to with with my older <laughs> shittier microphone. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs> <laughs>